All right, Luke 9. So up to this point, there's a big shift in Luke 9. For about the next ten chapters, Jesus is on the road. So looking at the first nine and a half chapters of Luke, we've answered two questions. Who is Jesus? He's a healer. He's a teacher. He's a prophet. He's a miracle worker. Ultimately, what we've seen is Jesus is a suffering Messiah, and he's the Son of God. That was the culmination last week, this revelation that Peter and James and John receive on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus, that he is, in fact, divine. So that's what everything's been building towards. And then what does Jesus come to do? That goes way back to Luke 4. Jesus gives this mission statement, which we summarized as setting people free. So Jesus is a suffering Messiah who's the Son of God, and he's come to set people free. He does that through what he says and what he does. He sets people free from sin and from sickness, from demonic oppression, from this religious system that is crushing them. That's what Jesus comes to do. For the next ten chapters, the focus is what does it mean to follow him? Or what does it look like to follow Jesus? These other two questions are still there. They're, they're in the background more than the foreground. The emphasis is what does it look like or what does it mean to follow Jesus? So for the next five or six months, however long it takes us to get through the next ten chapters, that's going to be the question that we're looking at. What does it look like? What does it mean for us to follow him? Today we're going to look at a section that seems to be Just a bunch of random statements. It's hard to see exactly how they tie together, but I've tried, and you can decide if I did a good job or not when we're on the back end of this. So we're going to start in verse 43. As I'm reading, you can maybe be listening for misconceptions that Jesus is correcting. That's what I think ties the rest of chapter 9 together. These are some misconceptions that Jesus is correcting. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and the disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So again, it seems like maybe a random grouping of sayings. I think what Jesus is doing is he's addressing some misconceptions as he sets out on the road for Jerusalem. It's ten chapters, but it's probably a very short time frame, just a handful of months as Jesus is marching 
pretty uh, directly towards his death. So first thing we see, Jesus is correcting the understanding of what type of Messiah he would be. We've talked about that before. He says to the disciples, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be delivered up. That is by God. I'm going to be delivered up by God into the hands of men. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. The disciples continue to not get it. We read it was hidden from them and we can go, what? well... Who hid it from them? Was God hiding it from them? If God was hiding it from them, well, how is it their fault? I don't think it was God that was hiding these things from them at all. I think it was their the stubbornness or the, it's the unwillingness in their own hearts and minds to listen to what Jesus was saying. He says, listen very carefully to me. He wants them to understand. In chapter 8, verse 10, he says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you. That is, I'm, I'm talking straight to y'all. Everybody else I talk to in parables, y'all are getting the unfiltered, straight version from me. And they still don't get it. When he comes down the mountain, what does he call them? An unbelieving and perverse generation. And I think that's said out of frustration, not anger. He's like, y'all still are not seeing the picture here. I've told you, I'm going to have to suffer. And they're not, for whatever reason, they can't hear him. It doesn't fit their expectations of who the Messiah should be. The Messiah should be a conquering hero, not a suffering servant. But he continues to say the same thing, and they continue to not hear it. So he's trying to correct this misconception of who he is as the Messiah. And then as he's doing that, he's talking about his own death. They're arguing about where they're, who's number one, two, three, four, one through twelve. They're arguing about their rank and status as he's saying, I've got to go die. It's completely, it doesn't connect at all. And so Jesus brings this little kid. Maybe it's the one who he just healed when he comes down the mountain. He puts his kid in front of them and says, if you want to be great, then you've got to start welcoming people like that. Now, for us, when we think children, we think kind of this cute little girl on the left. It's more like the person on the right for them. Children, we worship kids. They're at the center of our lives. We, it's what we do. Not first century Jewish culture. Children were at the bottom of the ladder, not the center of anyone's life. They were insignificant. They were weak. If you could imagine an economy where you're having to grow your own food, your subsistence day after day, all kids do is take. They add nothing to the mix for your family. They don't work. They don't make any money. They're not bringing anything in. All they're doing is consuming. So the idea of saying, I want you to offer hospitality to a kid, that's not what you do. That's not how you treat children. They may need to serve us, but we certainly are not in a position where we would need to serve them. And Jesus turns everything upside down and says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, he's fixing this misconception. Here's what greatness is in my kingdom. It's not whether I pick you, Peter, you, James, and you, John, to go up on top of this mountain with me. That we talked about last week. It's not whether I left you nine down here like we talked about last. It's not not that. It's not how many people you've led to the Lord. It's not how many people you've healed. It's none of those things. If you want to be great, you've got to figure out how to be the least. You've got to get low. You've got to act like that child on the right. Children, particularly in that culture, they offer nothing. All they do is take. They recognize my existence is based on the grace of Another, people providing for me. I bring nothing to the table. Can you say that? If you want to be great in the kingdom, then me, you, we've got to come to this place where I can say, I bring nothing to the table. 
Everything that I receive from God is a gift from Him. I don't deserve any of it. I add nothing to Him. In James, uh, we read that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That idea of humility is dependence. It's recognizing my need for Him. If I want to be great in the kingdom, if I want to be favored by God, that's what they were saying. Who's the most favored among us? Well, favor comes to those who recognize their need. Grace is God's favor, and he says his favor is available to those who are humble, those who recognize their need for him. So if you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to recognize your dependence, your complete and total dependence upon him. Maybe what they mean by great is we're going to do great things. For us, that's also only through God's grace. We don't do anything in our own strength. Anything we do in our own strength burns. It's only things that we do by and through the grace of God, that lasts. And so Jesus turns the whole notion of greatness up on his head. Then the next couple I see together, we see the twelve, through the spokespeople, James and John, drawing lines. They're making boundaries. Who's in and who's out. So John comes to Jesus and said, we saw this guy who was casting out demons in your name, and because he wasn't in our group, he wasn't one of the twelve of us, we shut him down. And Jesus is going, why would, you, why would you do that? My opinion is that this guy was a follower of Jesus. He was in the broader circle of those who were following Jesus. We'll see some of those guys next week when Jesus sends out his second wave of short-term missionaries. There were people other than the twelve who were devoted to Jesus and were following after him. And Jesus says to John, speaking to the rest of the disciples, why would you cut him off? He's doing the same thing I commissioned y'all to do, casting out demons. In my name, so why would you say he doesn't have a spot? Just because he's not one of the twelve. For us in the church with a capital C, this is a big deal. In 2006, there were 217 denominations in the United States. Methodists, Baptists, there's a lot of different types of Baptists. Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Anglicans, 217. And there were 35,000 independent, non-denominational churches. So that's us. We're kind of like free agents. There's 35,000 of us and 217 other denominations. It's a lot of different flavors of Christians. And what we tend to do, very easy, to say, well, God is working through us, and, and we know that. We can see that. But because you think differently than me or practice different than me, then God's probably not working through you. We assume, well, because God's working through us, then everyone else who he's working through will believe and act just like us. That's very subtle. It's very easy to fall into that trap of because we're being used by God or because I'm being used by God, then everyone else who God uses will believe and act just like me. It's not the case at all. That's what Jesus says. Just because this guy's not one of the twelve doesn't mean that God's not using him. Just because somebody chooses to sprinkle a baby instead of dunking an adult does not mean that God is not using them. Just because you take communion differently, just because you have a different opinion on church government or spiritual gifts, that doesn't mean that God is not using those people. They don't have to believe and act exactly like us. Very easy for us to fall into that. You probably don't do this, but if you did and you looked at different religious Christian sites on the Internet, some of the most hateful interactions are Christians interacting with each other for silly stuff, silly things. 
relatively speaking. Some people take it very seriously, but in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's over minutia in terms of what we believe and what we, how we act. We agree on 98%, and we choose to focus on the 2%. That's debatable. doesn't make any sense. We're like the apostles, John, in a lot of ways. He's not one of us, so we, we shut him down. And then they move towards Samaria. There's a hard shift in verse 51. That's when Jesus says he sets his face towards Jerusalem. That's literally what that means. He set out resolutely. So that signals a shift in the whole gospel. Again, up until he gets to Jerusalem, the rest of the gospel takes place on the road. He's on this journey towards Jerusalem. He sets his face towards Jerusalem. You can look on this map. So they're up there at the top. I don't, those words are probably too small for you to read. They're up there at the top. And they've got to get down to Jerusalem, which is down at the bottom. And the quickest way is to cut through Samaria. And so what Jesus does is he sends some of his disciples ahead to say, find us a place to stay. And the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other. And they've hated each other for hundreds of years. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the Good Samaritan in a couple of weeks. But just for now, just know they hate each other. There's a lot of animosity for a lot of different reasons. The Samaritans don't recognize Jerusalem as a holy city. They have their own mountain and they've got their own version of this is where God is. He's not in Jerusalem. So they hear Jesus is going to Jerusalem and they say, no, you don't get to come through here. And so James and John, who just by virtue of their upbringing, naturally would despise the Samaritans. Not hard for them to then say, hey, we got a great idea. Let's burn these guys down. And I don't know, it'd be great to have been there to see, like, were they smirking when they said it? Did they really, like, did they, maybe they got kind of full of themselves when Jesus pulled them up on the mountain and they were like, hey, we're, we can do this. We can call fire down and burn this town up. And you can just imagine Jesus. It says he rebukes them. He expresses strong displeasure at their actions. I imagine he's going, oh my, what am I, like, have y'all, you forgotten so quick? What did he say in Luke chapter 6? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Nowhere in there does it say, call down fire from heaven and burn them up. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. He just sent them out on a short-term mission trip. And he said, you're going to be rejected. And when you're rejected, what did he tell them to do? Shake the dust off your feet. Again, no, no burning. Shake the dust off your feet. That's it. That's all, you're, that's all you have to do. You love your enemies. If people reject you, This town rejects you, you just shake the dust off your feet and you keep moving. There will come a time for judgment. Jesus is correcting their misconception about what he came to do. He didn't come to burn anything. Now, this is the year of the Lord's favor. He says that. We looked at that Luke 4, his mission statement, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you go back and read Isaiah 61, there's a comma after favor. And the rest of it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus knows that, and he cuts it off. He's reading from a scroll, and he deliberately stops at proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He chooses not to read the rest of it in the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because that's not what he's doing now. Read Revelation 19. That's the day of vengeance of our God. 
He comes back on a white horse and he's got a sword in his mouth and it's going to be bad for people who reject him. That's when there's burning. Until that, there's no burning. It's not what he's doing now. First Peter, this is a time it's, it's where he's, he's not slow in keeping his promise. He's, kept, he's created space for people to say yes to him. Now, today, Hebrews, today is the day of salvation. That's what Jesus wants these guys to know. You don't cut off somebody from our group just because they're not in your little group. This guy's still following me, so don't, don't push him out. That's what he says when they say we told this guy to stop. And now he's saying your enemies, those people who you despise, people who are undermining the things that you believe in, you love them too. You don't burn them down. Everybody is either a neighbor or an enemy, and God says love them both. Everyone is in one of those two categories for you. They're either your neighbor or they're your enemy, and your response to them is exactly the same. You love them. Not easy, but that's what we're told to do. He's trying to correct a misconception. We have to decide, church as a capital C, how are we going to engage with people who hate us? And there are people who hate us. There are people who despise the things that you believe in. There are people who are actively working to undermine things that you hold dear. What are you going to do? Are you going to call for fire? You're not going to do that, but you may sit back and say, I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. What does Jesus say? Love them. We need to decide. Do we dig wells or do we build fences? In Australia, I've told you all this before, these huge tracts of land, You've got livestock. Fences are superfluous. They don't help you. Your sheep can be in your fence and you still don't know where they are. So what you do is you dig a well. They never stray far from the source of water or they're going to die. And we have to decide when it comes to interacting with people who we would say hate us, what are we going to do? Are we going to build a fence and say you're on the wrong side? Metaphorically, we're going to call down fire on them. Are we going to dig a well? And say, we know you're thirsty. And you can come here and you can drink whenever you want. It's not easy. Building fences is easy. And building fences safe. Got these very clear lines. We don't get contaminated. Not the best. It's not what Jesus did at all. If you read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the only people Jesus rips are religious leaders. He never rips prostitutes. He never rips tax collectors. He never rips sinners. He actually gets in trouble for being friends with those people. So if he were to come back today physically with us, if he was going to blast somebody, he'd start going around to our churches and saying, hey, y'all said you were following me. What part of love your enemies did you not get? What part of praying for those who persecuted you do you not understand? What part of blessing those who cursed you? Why are you not doing that? Look at his life. He never built fences. He only dug a well. John 7, 38 and 39 says, if you're a Christian, there is a spring of living water within you. You are made to be a well. You are not made to be a fence. And it is scarier. And going back to what we said earlier, you put yourself at risk from other people Other Christians taking shots at you. But it's, I think, I'm convinced, it's Jesus' way. People are thirsty, and what we've done is we've built a fence around the well. The only place where they're going to be satisfied. 
And I'm telling you, they're all, they don't, they may not know it, but every one of those guys, the harshest critic, the most hateful enemy, they're thirsty. Ecclesiastes 3, he's put eternity in everybody's heart. There's something in everyone that yearns for relationship with God. And what we want to do is create these wells that when in that moment, and it may be brief, when they actually recognize they're thirsty for something else, there's a place that they can go, there's a person who they can connect with and be satisfied. And you get to be that person if you're willing to be a well and not build a fence. Then they move on. These last three statements to me, super harsh. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, son of man has no place to lay his head. He's not saying, if you follow me, you're not going to have a house. He never had a house. What he's saying is he's a traveling minister, so he needs people to be hospitable to him. If he's going to have a place to sleep, it's because he goes to a town and somebody brings him in. He just got rejected in Samaria. We saw that, so he's sleeping on the street that night. Because nobody brought him in. What he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be rejected. And you've got to be okay with that. You have to value following me more than you value acceptance from others. You have to be willing to be rejected. And for them to be rejected, I mean, there's no place for them to stay. It had implications beyond just having your feelings hurt. And he's saying, I'm that important. That's what he's doing here is he's correcting a misconception about where he fits on the priority list. And he's making it very clear he's up at the top. He's the title. He's the heading. And then there's everything else. Acceptance doesn't matter. He's more important. And then there are these two family obligations. The highest obligation for a Jewish son was to bury his dad. There are only two reasons that you could avoid burying your father. If you were the high priest and there was only one of those. Or if you took a Nazarite vow, this temporary vow that said you can't touch a, a, a dead body. Unless you were the high priest, and again, there's only one of those guys, or you've taken this temporary vow. If your dad died as a son, it was your obligation to bury him. Period, dot, the end. That's what you do. And what Jesus says is, let the physically dead, or the spiritually dead, bury the physically dead. Following me is more important than that responsibility, that obligation, that relationship. You think about that. Highest obligation for a Jewish son. I'm going to bury my dad. And Jesus says, I'm actually more important than that. Let somebody else take care of that. Well, let me just go back and tell my family bye. You wouldn't be upset about that, would you? Nobody who puts their hands to the plow and then turns and looks back, looks at what's behind them, is worthy. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm moving this way. You're talking about going back that way. I'm Get in or get on board or go home. I hear those things and I'm going, harsh. There's no smooth edges around that. So I'm going to try to smooth them off. Is what I, he didn't really mean that. Have you ever said that? God wouldn't really want me to fill in the blank. If you read those three statements and take them at face value, he's, Jesus is setting a very high bar for what it means to follow him. I'm first, and then there's everything else. I'm more important than every responsibility. I'm more important than every relationship. I'm more important than every obligation. Intellectually, we know that's true. That is not an easy thing at all to live out, particularly where we are. 
where you can follow Jesus without a whole lot of sacrifice and without a whole lot of intentionality. When you suddenly butt up against something that's tough, my tendency, I don't know about yours, is to interpret my way around it, to ignore it. It's not what he really means. I told you all I was in Lexington a couple of weeks ago, and one of the missionaries there said this. She said, if you can tell people anything, tell them to give their homes to God. That's simple. It's the greatest asset most of you have in terms of dollars. More of your money is tied up in your house than anywhere else. How many of us have said, God, my house is yours. You can use it for whatever you want. Misty and I have been talking about that for, I guess, two weeks or one week, however long I've been back, for one week. And I haven't prayed that prayer yet because I'm not, I don't want to. I like my house being my house. I like being able to close the door. I like being able to pretend there's nobody. I like, I like it being mine, my safe spot where I can retreat to and I don't have to interact with people. That's what I enjoy. At some point, I've got to be willing to say, God, my house is yours. If that means Bo and Ruth Allen get to come over, they live across the street, then I guess I'll answer the door. (laughs) I don't know what that means. I've got to be willing to do that. I have a car. It's seat seven. When I'm in it, there's six empty seats. God, what does it look like for me to say my car is yours? Well, you wouldn't want me to pick anybody up. That's dangerous. I don't know. I've got to be willing to pray that prayer. What he says is no responsibility, no obligation, no relationship is more important than following me. So you've got to give me all of it. I want all of it. Give me your house. I want to use it. I'm not talking about whether you let a small group meet in your house. I'm saying, God, my house is yours. What does that mean? God, my car is yours. That's an asset that you've given me. And so I'm going to give it back to you and say, how do you want to use this? For some of you, it's, God, you've made me smart. I'm smart. That's an asset. I'm giving it back to you. How do you want to use my brain? How do you want to use my relationships, this network that I've built? How do you want to use those things? It's easy for us, again, to intellectually say Jesus is first. It's hard when you begin to work through the list of what does that mean. Well, he wouldn't want me to do anything that puts my family at risk. Where did he call Jesus to go? His son. Jerusalem. What happened in Jerusalem? He died. Brutally. Well, he came back to life. So will you. You're going to be resurrected as well. If you're in Christ. I don't know what that looks like for you. That's a hard thing for me to say. And I'm being honest and saying I'm not doing it yet. I'll tell you when I pray the prayer. Or maybe you'll forget and I won't have to. <laughs> but that's the challenge for that's the challenge, I think. And he says it when he's on the way to Jerusalem. So when he asks for everything you've got, he says it when he's on his way to give you everything he has. He went first. So before he asks you for everything, he's already given everything. It's not, it's not unfair at all. He's given his life, and now he said, give me yours back. Give me your stuff, your responsibilities, your relationships. Give me your assets. Let me use them. It really gets down to an issue of trust for most of us. Do I trust that God is a good father, or do I think as soon as I say, you've got my house, 
he's going to start making me do a whole bunch of stuff I don't want to do. As soon as I say, you've got my car, he's going to have me run in carpool with a bunch of idiots. Like, what am I afraid of saying? Can I trust him? Let's pray. I don't want you to feel guilty. This is heavy. I don't want you to feel manipulated. Some of you, your tendency, there's two ditches. You hear something like this. Some of you are already rationalizing why it's not true for you. And if that's the case, you're sinning. You need to hear it. He says, I'm first. Burying your father is not a sin. It just can't be first. So for us, protecting our children is not a sin. It just can't be first. It can't be what drives us. Moving up in our career is not a sin, but it can't be first. Making a home, making a way, it's fine. It just can't be first. He's got to be first. A good thing that you make primary, that you make first, becomes an idol, and an idol is a bad thing. So it's a question of priority. So if you've already dismissed and rationalized, I want you to just stop and say to the Lord, I'm, that scares me. I don't know what you're going to do if I say, you can have my house, you can have my car, you can have my checkbook, you can have my relational network. You know how hard I've worked on those relationships? makes me nervous to say you're more important than my family because I'm afraid you're going to ask me to do things that put my family at risk and I can't handle that go ahead and pray that in your heart and then pray this but I know that you're good You're never safe, but you're always good. And I'm going to trust you. I don't want to, but I'm going to trust you. Some of you jump all the way the other way. You're already on Craigslist selling all your stuff. You jump to the hardest thing. I I don't want you to do that. I want you to hear him. God's not looking for heroes and he's not looking for martyrs. He's looking for followers. That's it. So if that's you, you've already jumped to the extreme. I just want you to pull back and say before the Lord, God, I'll do anything. You just show me. Show me. I don't want to run ahead of you. I don't want to get in my flesh. I don't want to become self-righteous. I don't want to try to prove how devoted I am to you by how hard I make my life. But I'll follow. You're first. For some of you, the issue is fences and wells. You build fences either because you're scared. Some of us build fences because we're angry. But if you're a fence builder... Before the Lord, I just want, if you're willing, just to say, God, I confess, that's my tendency. 
I'm a fence builder. I'm a line drawer. And I know who's on what side. And if you're on the wrong side, I may not call down fire, but it wouldn't bother me if it came. God, I'm asking you to give me grace and courage to be a well digger. I recognize your spirit lives within me. You said anyone who follows after you, rivers of living water would flow from us. So I know that's me. There are rivers. I don't feel like it all the time, but I recognize the truth. Your spirit, this living water flows from within me, and I don't want to fence that off from people who are thirsty. So show me what does it look like to live my life as a well. It's ambiguous. There are no firm boundaries. It's scary, easy to be misunderstood. But I recognize there are thirsty people who I come into contact with all the time. And you're the only one that can satisfy. Last. God, I want to make a name for myself. I want to be great. difficult for me to think about living my life dependent upon you. Everything for me has been about being able to take care of myself, make my own decisions, be on my own. The idea of living like a little child, of being least and dependent, that doesn't compute for me. That doesn't work in my office. I'll get chewed up and spit out if I try to do that. So you got to show me I want to be great in the kingdom, and I recognize to be great in the kingdom means I've got to figure out how to serve. I've got to figure out how to get low, how to live a life of humility. But I don't know practically what that looks like. I could see, I could see it on a Sunday, but I don't know what that looks like where I work or in my home. So show me. Show me how. I'm willing to learn and change, but you've got to show me what that looks like. God, my prayer for everyone in this room, nobody would feel condemned or judged. Nobody would feel heavy. We would all recognize you're inviting us into a full life. It's what you do. You came that we would have abundant life, and this is the way towards it. Abundant life means I don't have to try to make a name for myself. I can just serve others. You get to decide where we're ranked. I don't have to fight for that. Abundant life says I don't have to draw. It's not my job to judge. I don't have to decide who's in and who's out and what they deserve. All I have to do is love. And bless and pray for It's abundant life, the weight of evaluating others. It's not on my shoulders. It's your deal. You'll figure it out. Abundant life is putting you first because you're the only one who can sustain the weight of our hopes and the weight of our life. Every other idol will crumble, will leave us wanting. Anything else that we make first ultimately will fail us. You're the only one who won't. And so although it's scary to say you're first, it's the safest choice we can ever make. You're the only one who can see tomorrow. You're the only one who's all wise and all powerful. You're the only one who's all good and all loving. It's what he's inviting you into. 
is abundant life. It doesn't sound like it reading this section in Luke, but that's what it is. It's the doorway to the fullest, most joy-filled and fruitful life you can imagine. So then the question is just, it's up to you. Will you say yes to that this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.